The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. LinkedIn presents. I actually turned to performance and achievement as a drug of sorts. If I got every blue ribbon or every trophy or I hit home runs or I got straight A's, whatever it was, that made me feel good. That's how my brain as a kid came to internalize the collection of messages around me in conjunction with the messages that society gives. That if I achieved, I was lovable. And if I wasn't achieving, I wasn't inherently lovable for who I was. I'm Maura Ahrens-Mealy, and this is The Anxious Achiever. We look at stories from business leaders who've dealt with anxiety, depression, or other mental health challenges, how they fell down, how they picked themselves up, and how they hope work will change in the future. We know that entrepreneurs, especially the most successful ones, have many traits in common, the ability to see new opportunities, imagine the future, and to take risks are just some of them. Mental health struggles are another thing that many of these successful people have in common. We've talked to some of them on the show, like Kayak co-founder Paul English, Bonobos co-founder Andy Dunn, and Emma McElroy, CEO at Wildfang. And many of us high achievers, entrepreneurs or not, have another trait in common. We just can't stop. We have to go for the trophy, be the best always, even if it's at a cost to our health. Today, we'll hear from someone in the tech and entrepreneurial space who's come face to face with how his drive to achieve reflects past childhood trauma and PTSD. Andy Johns previously worked for nearly two decades at companies like Facebook, Twitter, Quora, and more. His work, especially in the early stages, led him to be tied to eight companies worth a billion dollars or more. Johns is now an independent advisor, consultant, and investor in the tech space, and he's an advocate for mental health. You can read his stuff at andyjohns.substack.com. And before we got into the discussion of mental health, we started with the achiever part, as I asked him what he thought makes him a good early-stage investor. To be a successful early stage investor, you're not looking at spreadsheets. Uh, you're not doing complex financial analysis. In fact, most of the time, I just I don't want to hear what the business model is at all. Because, like Mike Tyson famously said, everyone has a plan until you get punched in the mouth. <laughs> and, <laughs> and you know, it's definitely true for startups. Everyone I've been at, we started with a plan. We got punched in the mouth 10, 20, 30 times. And then you just had to change the path that you're on or uh, in light of the new information that you had. And so becoming a, a successful early stage investor, in my mind, is mostly a qualitative assessment or a measure of the capabilities of the founding team, the potential for the market that they're targeting to become a large market. Like it's maybe it's a small wave right now, but in 10 years, it could be 
a tsunami. And so the ability to sort of anticipate where emerging markets are coming from. But mostly, I think it's just a measure of will this product change the lives of people who use it? And, and so my approach to getting involved with early stage technology companies almost always just came down to me using the product obsessively and then assessing for myself what sort of value am I getting from this product? And could millions to tens or hundreds of millions or even billions of people like me experience the same amount of value that this product is providing? And if I can appropriately assess the quality of the product experience and whether it offers something that's 10x better relative to alternatives in the market, once I have a strong feeling around that, that's that's usually all I need to make an investment decision. Super interesting. So, so growth is my word that I'm I'm hearing, and 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 your Twitter handle is I bring traffic. I'm assuming you're talking about web traffic, but what about growth in particular keeps your interest and motivates you to work that so hard? Yeah, it's. Uh, I didn't start my career thinking that I was going to end up in growth or working on something that is now known as growth. Define what is known as growth, actually. Yeah. So the way that I think about growth for a company is fairly similar to the way I think about finance for a company. You know, finance is responsible for measuring, understanding, and attempting to improve the flow of capital in and out of a business. Mm. And I think of growth as the attempt to measure understand and approve the flow of users or customers in and out of a product. So it's fundamentally the same thing. You're just measuring something that's a bit different, but that's how I think about growth. And so for an early stage company like Facebook, where I was fortunate enough to become one of the early members of what was the growth team or the beginnings of the growth team there back in 2008, Mm. it was, it was just fortune that I stumbled into that team. But that's where I really learned the ropes around what does it mean to drive growth for a technology company. And, and that's the beginning of where I came to conceptually understand growth in that analogy to finance. Wow. And Sheryl Sandberg, of course, famously said, if, you, if you're offered the chance to jump on a rocket ship, take it. And I guess... Yeah, just any seat you can get, just take it. <laughs> just take it. You know, it's interesting, though, because I've spoken to more than a few entrepreneurs on this show. and. It seems like a world that's really suited for people who might be struggling with mental health because there is a little bit of that riskiness maybe inherent, certainly with, with anxiety. But of course, I would assume that working in such high pressure environments can also really damage your mental health. And I'm curious what you think about your own mental health led you to those really intense environments. That's a... I think a spot on point, especially what you mentioned about risk. Uh, Dr. Michael Freeman, he's a psychologist, a psychiatrist, and an MD, uh, if I recall correctly, based in the Bay Area. Mm -hmm. And he and his team have conducted a lot of research regarding the double-edged sword of people who are wired for entrepreneurship. And... I think the seminal paper he put out was probably 2015, 2016, which kind of put him and the team on the map a little bit more on the subject of mental health within the entrepreneur community. I think it, the paper is titled, Are Entrepreneurs Touched by Fire? And th- the short answer from that research is that 
entrepreneurs are many, many times more likely to also have sort of a handful of various mental health conditions, sort of clinical diagnoses. For example, bipolar disorder is one of those. And it sort of makes sense because bipolar disorder is characterized by these extreme highs and extreme lows. In fact, um, I had Andy Dunn on the podcast who co-founded Bonobos and has just written an incredible book about his bipolar. And, and he actually asked the question at the end, could I have founded Bonobos if it weren't for my hypomania? And, and he says yes, but it, you, you feel that it's actually really a question for him. It is. It is. And that's certainly been my experience dealing with my own mental health disorders while building my career. And I think it's a very valid question because it's in those manic periods where you tend to suspend reality. And so mm. the, the common rules of reality that the average person may say, Oh, no, there's no way I'll never, I'll ever be able to build a business in that sector. That sort of common line of thinking, I think it at least contributes to the average person then not sort of pursuing something that seems so audacious that it seems unrealistic. And so the, those manic periods are not only characterized by maybe an upsurge in energy and thoughts and ideas and a strong sort of almost compulsive feeling to just create an awful lot of output and work, but it's also sometimes complemented with that suspension of reality and yeah. audacious thinking. And those two things are, a, you know, it's a strong concoction and it could lead, it could lead to somebody living a strong dream, so to speak. It, it, it's, uh, it's something that I contemplate for myself as well. It's, I don't have the same diagnoses that Andy Dunn has, but I can say that I've come to understand that, for example, my, my tendency towards a, a much higher average state of anxiety Mm-hmm. has similarly contributed to my ability to perform well at work while simultaneously also making it very hard to keep my head on straight. Well, I mean, that's the rub, right? It can be hell to live through. You know, I, I want to say something about that, which which is about curiosity also, because people who have mental health challenges can be very narcissistic and very self-involved indeed when they are in a bad phase, but we can also be very curious. And I truly believe that fortune favors the curious, allows you to see around corners, allows you to just, you know, profess radical inquiry, mm-hmm. <laughs> as Jerry Colonna would say. And that's a huge piece, isn't it, of entrepreneurship? Oh, absolutely. It's almost like you have to be excited at the prospect that you're taking a leap of faith. and. Yeah. It's the constant pursuit of the next leap to take. And it, it really is in the startup world playing what I, I consider the highest stakes game of poker on the planet. Mm. There's a huge amount of risk. A lot of risk must be taken. There's a lot of future seeing or future seeking or that curiosity that at least leads you to ask the question, what is coming up that nobody else is seeing? Or what I, what might I be able to do with this technology to apply it in ways that others have not? And the same is true to be a successful investor. Mm-hmm. It's really critical that as an investor, you allow your curiosity to drive you in the direction of this sort of voracious appetite for news and information, especially as it relates to these emerging fields of technology, these emerging markets. And so yeah. that's, it's no surprise to me when you hear about 
the classic stories of how Warren Buffett spends his day in the office. And as the story goes, and if you watch the documentary on it, that's certainly true. It seems like most of the time he just sits down and reads the newspaper. <laughs> <laughs> and then he's just sort of consuming this massive amount of information. But you know that in the background, he is ingesting that information and transforming it into some perspective, whether that's on yep. a company or a trend or a sector, it doesn't really matter. A point of view, a real point of view. That's right. And and it, it it's that point of view is the byproduct of a insatiable amount of curiosity. And so if he's reading the news or reading journals four to six hours a day, every day for 50 years, certainly he's doing something right as demonstrated mm. by this track record. No kidding. Okay, so back in early 2021, you started a Twitter thread where you really stood up and raised your hand and spoke up about depression and mental health. That must have felt very risky. What led you to that moment? Like, What led you to, to put up that thread? That specific tweet was actually in the midst of a very, very difficult period in my life. And so when I look back at that, I actually think that it wasn't a cry for help, but it absolutely was me releasing something that I had been holding on to for so long that I was just exhausted by it. And what I've been holding on to was this veneer that everything was perfect because on the surface, my career was, was continuing to reach new levels. Uh, I was having more and more success. My friends and family were sort of shocked at the rate at which my career had taken off. Hmm. But on the inside, I was just a bunch of band-aids and I didn't even fully realize how much at the time. But what I did know was that I just had this strong urge to just raise my hand in that moment in the smallest, most subtle way and just post a tweet about here's my understanding of mental health and wellness. As I, I sort of developed that framework through my own you know, 12 or 13 years of really, really hard mental health work that I've been doing sort of on nights and weekends, literally. So <laughs> I'm super curious because, you know, Twitter. <laughs> what about Twitter and like the fact that it could reach untold millions of people theoretically felt comfortable to you? What I mean, there is sort of to me like a cry for help there that you you chose a platform that is public. Mm -hmm. I did. I did. And I wish I could give you a rational answer or an answer that came from a rational perspective. What I can say is that speaking about mental health publicly felt like something I wanted to do for a very long time. Mm. But it was a feeling, this sort of urge to just say something was something that I just kept pushing down. Because to your point, I was uh, I was afraid to, especially being in the mm. positions that I was in. I didn't know anyone else. There, there weren't a lot of, of folks in my position that were speaking up. And uh, I didn't know what to expect. And so I was afraid to say something. But I just had this reoccurring feeling as if the universe was communicating through me and just saying, Andy, stop thinking for once and just do this. <laughs> and so I remember I, I had finished up a long day of work. 
I was sitting on my couch. It was probably, I don't know, six or seven or 8 p.m. or something like that. And without really thinking, I just started to type down what was in my head. Mm. And what was in my head is what came out in the form of that tweet storm. So it didn't really require a lot of processing. I just needed to, you know, take my thumb out of the dam. I just needed to mm. get out of the way and just let it come out. And so that's what I wrote. And uh, it certainly touched a chord. And then that began the process for me to more seriously contemplate the role of mental health in my life, the ways in which I may then start to steer my career away from the work I'd been doing and more towards mental health itself, some version of it, because I'm not a clinically trained professional. But me neither. Yeah, that, that really started the process of me then performing a rather large shift in my life to move in the direction of doing more of what I'm doing now, which is speaking about the subject because I'm just so damn passionate about it. Twitter obviously was a huge pivot point in a weird way in your life. It <laughs> was. Like- it was because the funny thing is, is the very first panic attacks I ever had began when I was working at Twitter. Oh, wow. Yeah, this is 2010. And I can distinctly recall... You know, I used to tra- take the train into San Francisco to go to work every day. And I, I can distinctly recall one week just feeling very uncertain, mm. just not feeling well. And I, I couldn't put a finger on it, but I just didn't feel like myself. And as the days went on during that week, I just kept feeling worse and worse. And specifically, it wasn't a physical feeling. It was a psychological sense of of not being safe mm. and being overwhelmed by horrible thoughts and th- just this deep feeling of like something's wrong. I'm not, I'm not well right now. Mm. And it continued to build throughout the week where I was having what I now know and what are referred to as intrusive thoughts, which are just sudden instantaneous thoughts that are usually accompanied by strong either visual or emotional feeling that just pops up into one's head without any premeditation. And just as quickly as it arrived, it disappears. But those thoughts can be so disturbing that they induce more panic and can lead to panic attacks. And so I remember preparing to board the train in the mornings to go to work and just having these rapid onset intrusive thoughts of images of people dying in front of me, of people burning in the buildings that I drove by while in the train, of of me being seriously injured in front of the train. And it was so confusing and such an intense experience because on one hand, the little bit of my rational thinking that was able to peek its head out in the midst of all this panic would say to myself, like, why am I having these thoughts? I don't want any of that to happen. But then Mm. the other part of my brain was completely overwhelmed by panic and continued to feed those intrusive images. And so eventually what happened was it's probably around 10 or 11 a.m. while I'm sitting in the office at work. And I was so overwhelmed by all these horrible thoughts that were flashing through my mind. And the pounding heart rate and I was sweating and I could feel that I was about ready to crack, that I was going to just start bawling. And I didn't want anyone to see. So I just, without saying anything, I grabbed my equipment, uh, my computer and what have you, 
walked out of the office. I walked back to the train and I got on the train to head home and I just buried my face in the corner and wept the entire way down. And oh my God, that was my first serious adult phase of panic. And what I came to later understand were the, the byproduct of childhood trauma that I had experienced. And that was manifesting itself, at least in the form of some clinical diagnoses of complex PTSD, obsessive compulsive disorder, mm-hmm. and persistent depressive disorder. And I didn't know that that's what I was dealing with at the time. But when it hit, I knew that something was wrong. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hi, I'm Tober Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid, and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves, and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were, we were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. Uh, we'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. and so. We had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. I want to look back for a minute in your life. You've written what makes us unique as a species. Our remarkable memory and our tremendous imagination is also the root cause of most of life's suffering. How does this apply to you, to your memories and your imagination and and, and how that manifested your mental illness? Mm. Yeah, just to dive into that statement a little more. I remember in elementary school when there was a uh, discussion around history or anthropology or biology, that the statement was always made that it was the opposable thumb that made humans this unique creature relative to anything else on the planet. I bought into it at the time, like most kids do. I thought, okay, yeah, that makes sense. We have an opposable thumb. We could use tools. And since we could use tools, we could build stuff and ta-da, society. <laughs> the opposable thumb matters. I'm glad that I have two of them. <laughs> but the, the, <laughs> the thing that, that really differentiates us is this dream machine that we have in our head. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by this dream machine is it has this modern layer to it, the cortex that is so developed relative to anything else on the planet that it actually has the ability to think of things that aren't there, to imagine things that aren't real. And then to then take that imagination, that ability to think of things that aren't real and then turn it into what we consider reality, right? (laughs) And so one example could be 
oh, I have this idea of this, uh, what if there was this way I could start a small business as an independent consultant and I could build that business, but then I could also secure my own assets and protect myself in case something goes wrong. And then we, we come up with this concept of a limited liability corporation and then we transform it into legal paperwork and then all of a sudden it's <laughs> quote real. And that, that is the rock bottom truth behind all of life is that everything that we experience day to day that we consider real is only real in the sense that it was an idea that we once had. It was something that we imagined and then we built some version of it to make it accessible to all of humanity or to other people. And so it's this incredibly powerful thing that can be harnessed in a lot of positive ways. But then that dream machine can always, can also fabricate these ideas and these beliefs of things that aren't real that are harmful to ourselves. Right. You know, a really common version of that is, or a manifestation of that is uh, when somebody feels like, you know, they're an imposter and we call that imposter syndrome. And it's because we're having a collection of ideas and these thoughts in our heads that we're inadequate or we're not prepared or we're not as good as we think we are. Or everyone else around us is better. So why is Andy giving this podcast interview? You know, what, what on earth does he know that no one else knows? And, and so, right. Our, our brain goes nuts. <laughs> fabricates a lot of stories. Yes, it does. And and so what we can do is we can become so wedded to those stories, those beliefs, those fabrications that we believe they're as real as the building that I'm sitting in. And they can become deeply limiting. They can lead us towards or down paths that are just not good for us in life. Or for others. Yeah. And, and so that, that's what I meant by that statement. And, and so for me personally, it's been something that is, you know, this mind has been something that's helped me dream of a successful future in a way that I made that dream so real in my mind that I turned it into you know, real in the, the sort of tangible world outside of my brain. And I'm thankful for that. But at the same time, it's also been a source of tremendous pain for myself as I, like most people do, fabricated beliefs based on what I was taught or trained or absorbed through the socialization of life that have then been quite harmful to me as well. So you have a diagnosis of complex PTSD. Where does that stem from? Where is the trauma? Sure. So the first 10 years of my life was from a child's perspective, quite chaotic. Just to give some of the broad strokes on it, you know, I, I grew up in a uh, small blue collar town in Central California and my grandparents and actually the majority of my family were farm laborers of one sort or another with my grandparents running a farm and my, my dad, my uncles working on the farm and us as kids making our own small contribution to it as well. And the context was one that we were this this hardworking, blue collar, kind of lower income household where my dad, he ended up being the the stable the stable adult in the family that you could turn to for security and for safety. My mom unfortunately struggled with her own very significant mental health disorders um, stemming from her own childhood sexual trauma. And 
that ended up revealing itself in a bunch of unhealthy ways in her adult life right around the time that I was born. So she was in and out of mental health clinics uh, and institutes uh, for weeks or months at a time, uh, rehab centers as well. And so my parents ended up splitting when I was probably six or seven, I say six or seven, because I don't have a tremendous memory around all the specifics. I think my brain just decided to throw some of it away yeah. as a protective mechanism. Too uh, painful. Yeah, that's right. And with with a mother who was manic bipolar in conjunction with other th- other things, including uh, major depressive, I was just in an environment where there was a lot of uh, volatility. Mm-hmm. I was in an environment where I didn't always receive the protection and the nurturing that a child needs. There was a lot of uh, abandonment and there was some emotional and physical abuse that I experienced as well. And then it ultimately, unfortunately, culminated with my mom passing away when I was 10. Mm. And our family was bankrupt at the time, in part trying to pay for the medical bills. And so it was, it was very challenging. You know, the loss of a parent, the, the volatility of the, the environment I was in, some of the abuse and the neglect. And then ultimately, every child's greatest fear is the loss of a parent. And so that, that was the environment in which my nervous system was developing. And that combined with, I think, a genetic predisposition and, and some multi-generational trauma that existed within my family. You know, it, all of that made a major contribution to uh, the mental health challenges that I had to face as an adult. You've written, I'll never forget this line. It was so poignant to me. I think it said, achiever Andy equals loved. Unachiever Andy equals unlovable. Where did that thread come from? You know, I, I, for me, that developed very early. And I remember hearing Dr. Gabor Mate, who is one of the, the greats when it comes to speaking about uh, childhood trauma mm. as a trauma practitioner himself. You know, the way he puts it, he says all children are narcissistic and that's not pejorative. It's just a matter of fact is in terms of how a child absorbs information when that child still doesn't have a fully developed brain. And I think the context of my childhood was one where on one hand, I had this one parent that was suffering quite a bit with her own mental illness. And I think I internalized that some of the ways in which I was treated were because I just wasn't a good enough kid. Mm. And then on the other hand, I was also being given signals and reinforcement messages about achievement in school and in sports, which I'm actually very thankful for. You know, our, our father pushed us really hard, um, but in, in ways that prepared us to be highly functioning adults. And to be able to take care of ourselves and to have the work ethic necessary to do great things. And so I think it was just that accidental concoction because none of this, of course, came from a bad place for my parents. I have nothing but love for my dad and my mom. I I, I fully understand that, that everyone in life is just doing the best they can with what they've got. And for me, they did a lot of incredible things. And one of those was a really hard push to succeed and excel. And when I was struggling as a child, it's sad and depressed and having panic attacks and, 
and just sort of a low level of constant anxiety, I actually turned to performance and achievement as a drug of sorts. If I got every blue ribbon or every trophy or I hit home runs or I got straight A's, whatever it was, that made me feel good because I didn't always feel good. But when I did those things, I felt good and I felt lovable. That's how my brain as a kid came to internalize the collection of messages around me in conjunction with the messages that society gives. That if I achieved, I was lovable. And if I wasn't achieving, I wasn't inherently lovable for who I was. And so my story as an adult has basically been about achieving at the highest level that I could imagine for myself, but then eventually waking up to realize that uh, seeking external validation through achievement needed to stop because it was a sign of not feeling inherently lovable for who I was. And when I truly healed, when I continued to commit to the work that I did to heal those, those negative internal narratives. That's when I was able to take a step back from this relentless drive to just keep doing more because I was able to look at myself and say, you know what? I love who I am for who I am, as imperfect as I am. And I don't need to achieve on this level anymore. And so I, I walked away from my career at the peak of it from, you know, what was, basically a guarantee to make almost seven figures every single year. And yep. I just quit it all. I left it all behind. And and that was probably the best thing I ever did for myself because it was the ultimate sign of love was to say, Andy, you've done enough. Just let it go. You could also say, I'm just going to play devil's advocate here because I'm in that mood that like, that's the risk in you. That's the the sort of anxiety driven piece that's just like, I'm out of here. Yes. Yeah, there's, there's, there's certainly a little bit of all that involved. But what's interesting about it too, and I'll chat with some friends and former colleagues that are high performers as well. And there's a part of them that I could tell when they reach out to me that there's something underneath them that's saying, Hey, I'm doing well professionally, but underneath something's not right. And I want to dive into some internal work, some internal engineering and figure out why I'm not feeling so good. And what I could tell in those conversations is that some of them have a suspicion that if they do dive into their internal engineering and they do confront and rewrite those negative internal narratives into something that is more positive and more self-loving, that their achievement drive will drop off, that their societal performance will decline for the exact same reasons that I described, which was that earlier in my life, I thought that I wasn't lovable. Therefore, I needed to achieve in all these ways. But then later in life, as I came to love myself, I didn't feel like I needed to go win trophies anymore. And and so it is the, the conflict between achievement and self-love. There is some tension there. There doesn't have to be, but there often is. And uh, that was a tension that I came to understand at a deep enough level to where I said, okay, I know what I'm picking. I have enough trophies. It's time for me to love myself. But I think this this sort of internal conflict of like, wait, I'm, a, I'm an achiever, but I also don't feel very good. 
<laughs> that's something that I hear in an awful lot of conversations with the people that I'm close to. I think you and I are very aligned that we believe achievement is one of, I would say achievement and overwork are socially acceptable addictions oh, in yeah. our culture. Yeah. yeah. They cheer you on. <laughs> they cheer you on. I mean, it feels so good. It's like a, it's like that dopamine hit. What advice do you have for someone who's listening who's like, man, I got to get my dopamine somewhere else. This is, this is too much for me. Mm. Okay. So the, the advice that I would give somebody is first and foremost to seek the truth as to who they really are. And that's what I refer to by the internal engineering mm -hmm. is turn inward. You don't have to turn outward to try and solve what is fundamentally a challenge of, of how you feel internally. The answer is always inside that, that that's number one. And you could do that with talk therapy, with cognitive behavioral therapy, with meditation, with psychedelics, you name it. Just mm -hmm. seek what works for you in terms of of diving internally and understanding the truth as to who you are and why do you feel the way that you feel. That That is the overwhelming answer that I would give to anyone because to feel better, you have to understand the truth as to why you don't feel well. And, and that's the best advice that I can give people. I have to ask you one more question, which I feel like is a little controversial, but why do you think a chemical imbalance is an outdated way to think about mental health? Because it's an ultra simplistic model of not only how the brain works, but how the brain may be conditioned to work in specific ways. And it also implies that if there's a chemical balance, then the answer lies strictly in recreating the appropriate balance, which isn't true. But it also implies that this is happening in isolation or in some sort of vacuum, as if the person who's living in the conditions that they're experiencing day to day aren't influencing that imbalance. And so I think that there's all sorts of fallacies with that sort of brain chemistry explanation. And the more appropriate model of mental health is the one that I tend to align with, which is the biopsychosocial model which says that there's a biological component, there's a psychological component, and there's a sociological component. And what that means is that one's social experiences can influence their biology. And with the biology being influenced, that can influence their psychology. So with myself, for example, if the environment that I was in as a child was a volatile one, that was happening at a time in which my brain was developing and my nervous system, it's, it's sort of its base level of energy was being established. That toxic environment that I was in then directly influenced the development of my nervous system in a way where my nervous system tends to be switched on by default, hmm. more so than say the average person who hasn't experienced those, those same external influences on, on their nervous system. And so it's this integrated model of understanding that the experiences you have shapes your biology, which shapes your psychology, and it goes in reverse as well. So yeah. those, then how your psychology is shaped, then also 
influences your body and it also influences the way that you project yourself to the world. I, I, you know, certainly I, like you, I'm, I'm not a PhD, but I, but I do feel that one of the few silver linings in our pandemic is that we are embracing a broader understanding of how our lives drive our mental health and our mental illness. Yeah. And, and that's just true. Yeah, it certainly feels like there's a shift afoot and that that is one of the silver linings of COVID is it did elevate the conversation around mental health. Now, I hope that doesn't go away and I suspect it won't because the prevalence of anxiety and depression within, within our culture is, is just increasing. It's not going down. It's going up. It's not it's, going down. No. No, that's why your work is really, it's really timely. And, and I thank you so much for your time today. I really do. Yeah, I appreciate you having me for having this conversation, and and uh, I hope that we get to do it again. That's it for today's show. The Anxious Achiever is produced and edited by Mary Dew. Our assistant producer and sound engineer is Nick Krinko. Thank you to the team at LinkedIn for supporting me, especially in this first season. We're wrapping up the season with this episode, but get excited because we're going to be back in the fall and winter, and spring with a whole new slate of episodes. If you have a story to share or an episode idea, I'd love to hear from you this summer. You can reach out to me on LinkedIn, or you can tweet me at MoraAM. If you love the show, tell your friends, subscribe, follow, or leave a review. From LinkedIn Presents, I'm Maura Ahrens-Mealy, and this is The Anxious Achiever.